And before we kick off today's episode, I want to give a big thank you to one of our brand partners who keeps this podcast free to the listener. Nagaro is a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagaro offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desk, cybersecurity, and more. Make sure to check out nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-R-O.com. So today's show, I'm really excited. We focus on Series A startup haptics as we welcome Jake Rubin, co-founder and CEO of one of the world's coolest companies that helps VR users to develop simulations with realistic touch feedback and natural interactions with over 12 million in their latest round, including Mason Avenue Investments and NetEase, who are their more recent investors. This is episode four, why VR leaders are laser focused on the enterprise and industrial manufacturing markets a CES chat with Jake Rubin. As for Jake and the team, they are laser focused on the enterprise right now with its first commercialized product, the Haptics Gloves. Huge thank you to Jake for taking time out during the madness of CES. But that's quite enough for me. Without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome Jake Rubin, founder and CEO at Haptics. All right. I do want to touch upon your comment in one of Charlie Fink's latest Forbes articles about being laser focused on the enterprise. I think it's a great focus and insight, especially since each Fortune 500 company has a number of different groups and each group has their own budget. That just leaves a ton of runway for haptics. What does that mean just heading into 2020 right now? Yeah, I think the industry as a whole has really refocused on enterprise across the last couple of years. Some companies have been quicker to pivot to the enterprise than others. Consumer VR had a huge amount of momentum and buzz around 2013, 2014 with the Oculus acquisition and the aftermath of that. And I think everyone in the industry obviously remains super excited about consumer VR. There's obviously still a lot of activity in that space, but just the economics of the consumer space and the realities of it make it very difficult for a startup, particularly one doing a hardware peripheral to compete and enter that space. You've got to have very low cost, massive hardware, sorry, massive software ecosystem, lots of hardware compatibility. It's just really not feasible. Even some of the, the guys like Magic Leap who've raised billions of dollars, which most startups would kill for, are having trouble really getting broad adoption soon in the consumer space. So we saw them recently announce a, a pivot to enterprise. And I think for the next several years at least, enterprise is just going to be the driving force of the, the VR market in terms of technology innovation. Companies like Facebook and, and HTC are doing great work in the consumer space, but I think you got to have a Facebook-like budget to compete in that space right now and be willing to lose a lot of money, and God bless them because they're, they're paving the way for the rest of us. And I do think that all these startups that are making their mark in the enterprise space, including us, will eventually bring that technology as it gets refined and miniaturized and cost-reduced to the enterprise space, but it really is the only place where you can build a business right now. And beyond that, we, we do really, truly love the enterprise space. It's not just a necessity. It's somewhere where we're excited to be working with customers every day in applications where we are literally potentially saving lives, helping people do their jobs better, making meaningful impacts on the economy. We work with a lot of medical, military, industrial, defense applications. And as much as I love the Ready Player One vision of being able to jump into a virtual world and hang out with all your friends and do all kinds of amazing things, I think the greater impact on humanity itself is to be had, not just the economics, but the impact piece is to be had in the enterprise space right now as well. So from both those perspectives, it's a no-brainer for us. Oh, I love it. I love that transition. When it comes to the industrial manufacturing, 
screen, whether it's product design, like they did with Nissan, that brought touched the autom automaker's virtual vehicle prototypes, logistics, manufacturing, maintenance and car repair. What do you see big time opportunities? You hinted on it, but what do you see some big time opportunities in the enterprise space? Yeah, so I think it's really all going to be, for, for us at least in the haptic space, training and design. And for most people in the enterprise space, those are two of the biggest markets driving adoption. For us, we really focus on applications where motor skills are critical. There is some set of VR applications where you know, headset and some controllers is, is enough and they don't need haptics you know, immediately. But we find when we talk to most enterprise customers that they're severely limited in their rollout and the impact of VR and AR training and design and other initiatives by that lack of haptic feedback. You know, think about our customers in medical, industrial, military, defense, oil and gas, really anywhere where motor skills are critical. You can learn about something with a headset and controllers. It's nice to be immersed, it's 360 video, get an overview of, of something, but you can't really learn to do something, particularly when that something involves motor skills. And that's where haptics become critically important because the vast majority of the cost and time to train a task comes from building those motor skills, not from learning about the background. And that's something that you can do almost as well in a book as you can in VR. So I think for VR training to really make its mark, it's gotta be able to do the whole package, not just learn about something, but learn to do something and have those skills translate directly to the real world. That's impossible without haptics and good haptics, haptics that are good enough that you're building the right mus muscle memory that translates seamlessly to the real world. That's a high bar. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be good enough that if you learn to do something, you don't have to then relearn that in the real world. That's what we call negative training in the industry, and our customers are terrified about that. That is, That makes technology literally worse than useless. Yeah, I, I, I think the haptics piece is game changer. It just really brings that experience to life. You just don't typically get with just a plain VR headset. So that's really fun. What's your vision? Obviously you had a vision five years ago or 10 years ago about this at some point. What's your vision for the next five years? You know, the vision really hasn't changed since the beginning. You can look back at some of our early websites, our early press releases, talking about full body, fully immersive vision. I think people took that and assumed that was either here today or it was going to be there immediately. We tried to play that down when we were talking about it, but that vision hasn't changed. It's just taking time to become reality like any other technology development. We're starting with the gloves because for, for two reasons. One, it's the best single individual product. The hands are the most valuable part of the body to be able to have realistic touch. And two, the one that people don't think about as often, it's actually the most sensitive, most dynamic part of the body as well. And that means it's a perfect engineering test bed to validate all this, these technologies. Every single piece for our platform, the skin, the exoskeleton, the motion tracking, everything, it's all designed with the full body in mind. And in fact, it's much easier for us, even today, to build a full body suit than it is to build gloves, primarily because of the sensitivity of the skin. If you look at the torso, the arms, the legs, the feet, they're all on the order of about a hundred times to even a thousand times less sensitive than the skin of the palm and the fingertips. And that is something, again, we could do today if we wanted to. There's just not a whole lot of demand for that full body versus VR experience until you get the hands right, you get the headset right, you have a relatively robust content ecosystem. There's a few boxes you have to check first. As far as what I see is immediate next steps. Obviously right now we're taking our gloves. We're very happy with the quality we've been able to achieve. We think it's already past the point of diminishing returns in terms of improving quality. And our customers, more importantly, are quite happy with it. So our primary focus in the immediate term is to increase volume, decrease price, improve form factor, all those things that go into making a product successful at scale. Once we get there, 
then we'll refocus on adding more parts of the body and continuing to increase the fidelity, going from standard definition TV to 4K, for example, getting more points of feedback, higher quality, etc. But for now, it's really all about just making it a better product, better ergonomics, smaller, uh, more cost-effective, and, and most of all, larger production volumes. We've recently closed an uh, announcement funding round, and we've closed a really foundational manufacturing partnership with a company called Advanced Input Systems that has four decades of experience building human-machine interface devices and, and designing them. And we tried to bring this to market ourselves, and we found it was extremely difficult. With all, we, We're able to produce these technologies in-house reliably at small scales, but going from that to large-scale mass manufacturing as a startup is challenging. And unfortunately for us, a lot of the technologies are that we're working with are highly novel and very complex. And so we can't just go to a Foxconn or something and say, here, make this. It took us about a year to build this, part, this partnership with AIS and get comfortable with each other to the point where we, we knew we could count on them and they knew they could count on us. And now that we've signed that, we've got the funding in the bank, we are ready to hit the ground running. We're going to have a lot of exciting product news in the next year. I can't talk too much about it today, but you'll see a lot from us soon. And uh, we're going to be going out there at a much larger scale with significantly improved products. I love that latest funding round and AIS, that support, and that's it, game changer. Haptech's mission is to enhance human-machine interaction. Mm -hmm. My brother-in-law is a spinal surgeon in Seattle. Uh, and the use case in the medical field of where you've partnered with Fundamental Surgery and integrated Haptex gloves into their VR medical training platform, can you dive a little bit deeper on the use cases in the medical field that you're seeing sure. today? Medical is one of the primary areas of opportunity that we see initially. It's also challenging because it's got a very high level of regulation around it and a very high level of complexity. And so our, the way we've approached that field, is, as with the way we've approached most customer applications, is you know, we are the haptics experts. That's what we do so well is we build the hardware, we build the software, we understand everything about how the human body interacts with the environment and how that produces a sense of touch. We're not domain experts in, for example, surgical simulation. So that's why we've built this partnership with, with Fundamental. They've spent years and years capturing every detail about these um, specialized surgical and medical procedures in a very realistic manner. And so that's where we pass off responsibility to them. We make sure that our hardware and software platform has the capabilities they need. And on top of that, they build these highly specialized applications. So that's an area that I think has a lot of promise. It's early still because, again, of the complexity and the regulation. But I think that we will see companies like Fundamental VR, supported by technologies like ours, have a huge impact on the next five, in the next five to ten years, completely changing how we train doctors and surgeons. It's simply way cheaper, way better, allows for way more repetitions, and the ultimate goal is to allow uh, doctors and surgeons to practice a highly specific procedure based on real patient data as many times as they want before they actually go and cut you open. That's the dream, and we're not that far away from that. Yeah, no, that's really good. My brother-in-law has shown me some photos, and it's it, it comes down to a millimeter or less, and you yep. can paralyze the person. So I think this is game changer. What makes VR so fascinating to you versus some of the other reality technologies out there on the market? It's all about immersion in VR. So if you look at the spectrum of XR technologies from you know VR through to AR, VR is the ultimate immersion. You are completely replacing the outside environment, in fact, the person's perception of their own body with a virtual environment. And that gives you complete freedom. You can create anything you can imagine, completely un unbounded, unlimited by reality, by economics, by anything else. And that's always fascinating, being able to 
truly create experiences that we could only dream of before. I think AR too has a very valuable place in in our world, and it can do some certainly do some magical things as well. But fundamentally, AR will never have that level of immersion where you truly feel like you are in another world and you forget that you're here. AR is about overlaying and bringing virtual objects into the real world. And as with I think most other people in the, in the industry, I, I see it's not one or the other; they're not war. It's the same spectrum, and they're going to work together. In the future, people are going to have their eyeglasses or whatever they decide to call them, and their their VR headsets. Maybe they'll go to a location-based setting like an arcade or a theme park to get the really truly high immersion Ready Player One style experience. But you'll have these distributed virtual worlds that live in the cloud that everybody can access from a variety of devices, even potentially just a phone or a computer. And as you improve your hardware, you will have more immersion and greater fidelity. Just buying a gaming computer versus playing a game on your phone, much more. But I think this vision of a central world that both leak into the real world, that have overlays in the real world through AR, and that you can jump into and visit that world yourself through VR, that's where it's going. It's a spectrum. There's no clear dividing line. And in fact, one day, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because of the technical challenges involved. You know, AR and VR both are optimized for very different applications. One day, they may be the same device. You may have your AR contact lenses, and you might have your, you know, your gloves that just look like regular fabric gloves, and then maybe you don't need separate devices, but that's quite a ways out. Uh, as far as scaling the engineering team, what's been the biggest challenge so far? I think the biggest challenge for us has been, as I talked about a little earlier, in, in scaling manufacturing. So we spent years building an organization that was very good in R&D. We built all kinds of fundamentally new haptics technologies, obtained a bunch of foundational patents, all with relatively little capital, and leveraging the, uh, the wonderful infrastructure at Cal Poly as well to do that. But that's just so different than the skill sets you need and the capital you need and the scale you need to manufacture this. So when we started getting some really great uh, responses to our, our first glove product in 2017, when we went out, we were able to, able to raise more capital. We were able to start scaling the team, and we, we grew enormously, and you know, we really focused on skill sets that would help us bring the product to market. What we found is we hit a wall, because that was not our, that was not our expertise. We were burning a lot of money, we were encountering a lot of problems. It's a typical story that often results in hardware startups going up in flames. So you know, we really decided to pivot and bring on a partner to take on a lot of those tasks as well, and essentially divest ourselves of a lot of the uh, direct product development and manufacturing tasks, because even all the money in the world, as, as some startups have found out the hard way, is not a substitute for tons of experience in the infrastructure and the massive scale it requires to do that. So that's where our partnership with AIS came from. We realized that if we were going to survive and thrive and be able to meet all the customer demand we identified and have happy investors and <laughs> shareholders, we were going to have to find somebody else to help us with that. And that wasn't easy. As I said, if, if it had been as easy as getting a standard outsourced manufacturer to make a consumer electronics device, of course we would have done that from day one. But we, were, you know, we didn't know if there was someone out there that could do everything that we needed to have done to build this special product. We were very lucky to find the amazing team at AIS, and they do what they do so much better than we ever could. Even if we went out and raised a billion dollars, we still wouldn't catch up to their 40 years of experience, their eight sites around the world, their hundreds and hundreds of employees. In some way, that would be a piece of advice for me to hardware startups. And again, for some, it's much easier than others. Um, some have no choice but to do it themselves if there aren't manufacturers out there with that expertise. But it, it is very challenging to both do the R&D and create a new product and a new IP and take that to market market yourself. That's almost, it's almost impossible in some cases, particularly when you have a brand new technology and a brand new industry. Okay, and lastly, before we hit the what I call the 60-second seeking breakthroughs mm -hmm. segment, uh, what's the number one problem you're seeking to solve on the engineering side today? 
I would say right now, as I hinted at, we are scaling up significantly on the product side and we're releasing a lot of new products soon. So it's all pretty mundane right now. It's not breakthroughs, it's not high risk items, it's just a bunch of checking this box, but coordinating those all, making sure they happen on time so the customers get their product when they've, when they've ordered it and you know, it goes out the volumes we want, there's not cost overruns. It's all pretty pedestrian, but very important. We've luckily, with this partnership, the other nice side effect of that is we've been able to refocus on what we do best, which is the R&D side. We had to pause on that a little bit while we were trying to scale the gloves. And now we're going full force, double what we were before, into R&D on next generation devices. Of course, I can't talk too much about our R&D roadmap, but I hinted at it earlier, getting to this full body vision as quickly as we can, expanding to more parts of the body, enhancing fidelity, increasing our product offerings. And with this nice division between us and the AIS, we're able to create new technologies and hand them off to those guys to commercialize and manufacture. And that allows us to be as quick and efficient and agile as possible and make sure that we can bring this, this vision to life quicker than I think we'd ever really dreamed of. Oh, I love it. Okay, 60 Second Seeking Breakthroughs. Question number one, what do you know now that you wish you had known at the beginning? Manufacturing. I, I think for anyone starting a hardware startup, manufacturing is harder at scale. It's harder than you will ever think it is. Don't do it yourself unless you have to. Find a partner to do it. It's worth giving up some of your upside to make sure that you don't have to raise tens of millions of dollars and then likely crash and burn when you miss, miss your deliverables and piss off your investors and your customers. So don't do that. <laughs> okay, uh, number two, what, what are your three most important roles as a CEO? So for me, I think number one is probably just on the product side, R&D side. I've been highly involved since the beginning. I was the original inventor and the original founder of the technology. So I think I'm more product involved, more, more directly involved with product and research than most CEOs. Two is fundraising constantly, all the time. It never ends. We just announced a round, but you better believe we'll be fundraising again soon. So it just never ends. You got to keep the money coming in to keep the company growing. It's not the most fun job in the world, but as a CEO, you got to get good at it. You got to get comfortable with it. You got to build good relationships with both your existing investors and new ones. That's critical. And then number three, I would say, is just operations. It's easy to lose sight with fundraising craziness and the product craziness of HR, ops, finance, all these important things. It helps if you have a good COO or VP of ops. If you don't, you better keep tabs on that or you're going to have unhappy employees and a company that's crumbling around you while you go out and raise a bunch of money and build products. Don't, don't forget about the not-so-exciting things, but the things that still are critical. That's great. And then last one, what keeps you up at night, Jake? I think for the most part, for the last couple of years, it's been funding. It's hardware is a hungry beast when it comes to money. So I feel like most, a lot of my job has just been keeping, the, shoveling the money in the coal in the furnace to keep the, the train on track. That's starting to shift as we start to scale up and, and hopefully soon we'll have a, a different set of problems. I think for this year, it really is just execution. We have the demand lined up, we have the customers lined up, we've got a great product, but it's not easy to deliver on that. We've got a clear path forward, but we just got to buckle down and get it done. Love it. Thank you. 